A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. We are finishing Golden Sun. The end of book two is what we're talking about today. And uh, there's going to be a lot of tears, guys. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. Crossland is devastated. And I think I'm going to have a hard time hearing through the sobs, but we've got a great audio engineer who can kind of clean that up for you. So you should be able to hear them more or less normally. Hey there, this is Cross. Now I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast about depression shared by readers <laughs> everywhere. We tackle sad fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking to cope. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. Uh, Crossland, we are not... The, the haggard old drunks that you sit next to at your local pub. Cheer the fuck up. Let's go. We got to talk uh, about the book. And fine. Frankly, you're speaking too slowly for anyone to understand. That's fair. So I'll be taking no further questions because today fucking sucks. I love this book so much. Today, we're going to be breaking down chapters 47 to the end or through chapter 51. Fun fact, before we talk about what we're drinking, though, this is our 20th episode already, which it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Speak for yourself. Like, this is this is a fucking drag having to talk to you every week. I, you <laughs> I don't know how I son of a it. bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, how I love it. Here? And this is this is a ton of fun. I'm like, I'm so happy with how our how our journeys progressed so far yeah so before we talk about the series of really depressing content let's uh let's talk about what we're drinking what are what are you having it's a sort of a moscow mule it's uh lime juice grenadine grapefruit bitters and vodka shaken and then uh just topped with ginger beer and garnished with lime so i mean (laughs) moscow mule with a with grenadine and grapefruit bitters basically And then following that up, I've got a dirty little secret from Talking Waters Brewery out of Montevideo, Minnesota. It's okay. They've done some great stuff in the past, and I was really excited to try another one, but it's a little bit of a miss. But that's all right. Beer comes in all shapes and sizes. What type of beer is it? You got to tackle the ugly ones, too. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a hazy IPA. Interesting. What about you? Mm. What have you got? I am having a rum drink. I don't know what to call it outside of maybe just melancholy and sadness. But is it it's just uh, bitters and rum? <laughs> it should be. No, it's it's a couple of things. So it is two ounces of white rum, one ounce of a Manhattan mixture. So generally what you would put into a Manhattan, but like just kind of mixture. What, what would those ingredients be? Vermouth. And so... I, for this one, I'm using a bit of a pre-mixture. Okay. So it also has like some strawberry backing. And then I put in a little bit of extra simple syrup because it wasn't quite as sweet as I wanted it to be. What the fuck Um, kind of Manhattans are you drinking? Well, I'm not (laughs) expecting this to be a Manhattan, PJ. I'm doctoring the shit out of this drink so that I like it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) This is, this drink is called Melancholy and Sadness. I'm not going to like, you know. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, the Manhattan mixture was really just there to kind of temper the the flavor of the rum a little bit and kind of access it. 
a um, little bit of simple syrup and then Angostura bitters and icy boys. Nice. Yeah, it's it's definitely not bad. It's not my favorite, but similar to your beer, it's it's acceptable. This is definitely not the worst cocktail I've had on the show, but it's in the bottom. <laughs> that of the is board. a tall order to, <laughs> to topple the uh, well, cold oh, brew. Was it the cold brew one or was it just your Mountain Dew one that you did? Oh, the Mountain Dew one. We lost that episode. Oh, did we? Oh, we, we did, did, didn't we? <laughs> Shit. Yeah. We had to re-record yeah. that episode. Yeah, that sucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> but both both the cocktail and having to redo that whole episode sucked. Yeah. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I wonder if anyone can tell which episode that was. <laughs> uh, did we ever mention it? We might have. I, I don't think we did. I think you made a subtle joke about... This being the third time we had recorded the intro, and really it was the second time, but the first time was on the previous day (laughs) when we originally tried to record the episode. So with that, from the cocktail, I am following that up with Midtown Swank from Wellington Brewing Company. Double IPA, very good. Had one last night, done with Warrior Centennial Mosaic and Citra Hops. Pale malt, very good. Nice. Just going to crack it right now. Ooh. Mm -hmm, Good. Let out that hiss. All right, so with that, let's get into last week's predictions. So we've got a couple here to talk about. There were several that came to fruition. And several that didn't. And several that didn't <laughs> that we won't talk about. Um, it's fair to mention, I guess. So I, for anyone who's listening, PJ just came to realize, because we had finished this book, that sometimes I ask him questions that don't lead anywhere just to hear him speculate wildly. <laughs> And to make sure that I'm I'm effectively (laughs) misleading him (laughs) and not pointing him in directions, you know, because I don't I don't want to spoil it for you. But I think asking questions that are top of mind are important. I have been actively searching for whoever the Jackal's secret mystery backer is the entire fucking book. (laughs) I have been (laughs) trying to figure it out the entire fucking thing (laughs) the whole time. Such a dick. It's, it's pretty funny. So for those of you who have read it, I definitely apologize if you're like, why is he asking that question? And for those of you who haven't, who fell down the trap similarly like PJ, haha, I gotcha. <laughs> uh, so with that, we'll move into the, the actual predictions themselves. So one of them that you had from last week was how will Mustang react to whatever Darrow tells him? And you said, uh, I thought she would be receptive to it. <laughs> that should be open to the idea <laughs> She was not. Was not. That's a drink for you. (laughs) I've been actively trying to make as many mouth noises when I'm drinking (laughs) as possible. So you know I'm drinking. It's pretty funny. Okay, so number two. What comes next in the Solar War? Gastronics governors are coming. Which planet did they cut straight for Luna? And you said? I said they'd go to Earth before Luna as sort of a strategic kind of surrounding thing. Uh, that wasn't really discussed at all, was it? Nope. Matter of fact, they went to Mars. So yep, we never we never get to a point where they're even plotting to stage things. Hmm. That seems like a misleading question, doesn't it? Seems like you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. So stuff with the jackal and the gifts chapter resolution. I was pretty on the nose with not trusting anything about that and. Knowing that he he knew something was up. 
Yes, yes, you were. You definitely nailed it. You said Jekyll doesn't believe that Darrow truly saved them. And we'll talk about it later, but there were definitely references inside of that chapter that you didn't point directly to, but you got enough of the other information Mm -hmm. that you totally nailed it. So cheers. Good work. Mm -hmm. Drink On to number four. Yeah, I guess I just champion powered through that one, huh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here we go. All right. The next one was kind of part of the same question, which... You asked me about Harmony and Evie and what information the Jackal got from them. And I thought, or if he got any information from them, and I definitely thought they would have ratted him out as the Red. And it doesn't seem like that's the case. seems like he picked up on it on his own. So. Yep. You made a statement prediction. I made a statement. Feel free to read it. Darrow tells Victor and Roke about his color, so all his praetors will be on the same page. Oh, that's a little bit tough. A little bit of a tough no. <laughs> tough no for that one. Hardline no. Yep. <laughs> and then our final question, which just feels so mean of me to even have asked, is where do you think the book ends? Well, I said that it would end right before a see John Luna. It regrettably was an incorrect prediction. So. <laughs> and with that, this my is... drink's gone. <laughs> oh, man, dude, it's hilarious. I was like, this is easily the most predictions that we've had answered on air. That's six, you know, and five of them were yours that you had to drink for. So <laughs> great news. Great news, everyone. Yep. It's going to be a going to be a buzzy time. All right. <laughs> with that, let's get into chapters 46 through 51. So we're still in part four ruin, of course, that hasn't changed at all. But we're on chapter 47 free to start off with. Yes. Yes, we are. So it's it's very interesting. And it's only a brief mention, you know, in the first book at a handful of different times. But I think it's funny here that we stumble back into Ugly Dan and see him again for the first time, really, since that beginning point. I don't know if it's stumbling if he's like actively searching for him. Well, yeah, that's a fair point. He is actively looking for him. But we like we run into Ugly Dan again for the first time since the first book. And he just sees this guy kind of as like a shitty little ant, like a worker ant. He's like, why was I ever afraid of you? And now we get to the true theme of the book, which is ants. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Called back to the ant farm. Oh, I love ants. God damn it. All right. Sorry. But uh, yeah, so it, it was kind of interesting to see how little satisfaction he got from this. But it, it, it kind of makes sense. His perspective has shifted so, so much to a much wider view that this terror of his childhood is just some <laughs> dickhead just sniveling. Yeah. Yes, man. To the golds. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because ultimately, like both him and Timony, who we'll see in the next, was also mentioned, you know, at the beginning in that first 50 pages of the first book. And to see them as just kind of these nothing creatures, right, is just so kind of like satisfying, but also despicable, right? Because these were like their oppressors. These were the people that were like ruling and lording over them. Mm-hmm. You know, Nero was more like a god. These people were more like magistrates. Yeah, yeah, they're I mean, they're like prison guards mm-hmm. but the prisoners have no idea anyone else exists right right and it's just it's funny you had mentioned this and you 
you kind of put it out there, but seeing ugly Dan again really doesn't give him any satisfaction. So the reflection in the garden as well, back where the whole story started, is just wonderful. Coming home and feeling of it is kind of warming, but at the same time, it then like takes kind of a dark turn. Like it's warming in the way we're revisiting this sort of origin point. I didn't get story. anything warm off of it at all. I felt like it was all just kind of looking at this. This place seems so much bigger than like, it's this small little, it, it's nothing, nothing pretty, nothing beautiful, nothing amazing. Like he had always imagined it. There's fucking candy wrappers and weeds growing everywhere. He even says like, were there always weeds here? I don't know. I hadn't noticed before, but it's, it's gets him to start thinking about how much his perspective has changed. And there, there's a really kind of beautifully sad quote on 399 should have less left this place perfect in memory i wonder if eo is safer there safer from my eyes if i saw her now if i came back would i be so in love would she seem so perfect and i think that sort of seed of thinking is going to really kind of fuck with him going forward we haven't seen mm-hmm. a, i mean unless he's dead but i don't think that's the case maybe it's the case well, it could be. <laughs> be really interesting to introduce a new POV in the third book, well, right? Okay, hear me out. Third book is called Morning Star. Who is the Morning Knight? Cassius. Well, that'd be Cassius, sir. Yeah. So Cassius takes on the uh, protagonist role for book three. Hmm? Yeah, and what's he do? Go fuck people and duel some kids? Uh, he diddles people with his fake arm. I don't know. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, <clears throat> so to get back to what you were saying as well about the the quote, which I do agree, it's it's a perfect quote to kind of sum up the feelings and sort of the reflection on the space, right? I, I guess I, what I should have clarified is that Darrow expected it to be this big, warming memory, and then it ended up being this very damp and dour thing that he can see as a very real thing yeah. now that he actually has perspective on the rest of the world. You know, at the time when he was, when he was a Red, he... Before the carving, before everything like that, he really didn't have the sort of worldly view and perspective. You know, he's remembering the cities being grand and even just coming out of the mines being a big deal. Now he's like, I've fallen on a fucking planet out of a spaceship. Like, yeah. this is so nothing. But yet, I mean, it's still the, like the, the stars that they're looking point. at through there aren't even stars. They're ships. Yeah. Isn't that sad? I, I felt nothing but sadness in that. I feel nothing but sadness from this whole section. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is there, just there's depression. Some, there's some heartwarming stuff, like with his mother. Um, so let's move into chapter 48, The Magistrate. Mm-hmm. So we're formally introduced back to Timony Q. Podigenous here. And I gotta say, after listening to him talk for as long as he did, I just fucking hate copper so much. <laughs> like It made me feel oh my like... God. A little bit less love for cheese. And you know how hard that is for me. For cheese? Yeah. Just the amount... He was just droning on and on about the cheese that he had. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I love me some cheese. Shut the fuck up about the cheese already. Yeah, what what got to me, I think, about it's like whole speech. Like, the cheese thing was one thing for sure, but I think the other part of it was, like, I followed all of these protocols and manuals and how to deal with, like, rebellions and, like, yes. all of the titles of the books and everything, and it just felt so... Oh, 
On so, top of also trying to like brag about places he's gone and be boastful about like places yeah. he stayed and splurging on himself at a restaurant and blah, 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 blah. It felt like a rich college kid. Like that's that was the feeling that I got from Timony. Like it felt like a wealthy college kid telling you what he did on spring break. And yeah, it was just so frustrating. Yeah, I can I can absolutely see that. Fuck coppers. God damn it. Mm-hmm. All of them. <laughs> We're going to get rid of them when we, when we break <laughs> the society. Just extinguish that part of society. No one needs mm-hmm. it. The silvers yep. are already the diplomats. We don't need the coppers. Right. Yep. <laughs> Rather, I think actually the coppers are the diplomats and the silvers are like investors. Whatever. Stupid. So I don't, I don't like Timony. They do, he does a great job of painting him as despicable. I, I can't imagine ever wanting to see him ever again. Mm-hmm. What, and despite all of my ranting and raving about how much I don't like Timony. I love the quote that Darrow says in this scene, which is, I wanted them to be terrible, talking about Timony and Ugly Dan, hideous monsters, but they aren't. They're petty men who ruin lives and don't even notice. How many are there like them? And for how fucking stupid Timony is, it's crazy to think about the mind that he controls and all those people's lives that he's in charge of. Yeah. And that sort of hierarchy. And it's like, oh my God, you, the spoiled college kid, is the one that's in charge of all that? And then I thought about corporate structures as they exist. And I was like, oh, oh, that's it. That's it, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Painful. Ugh. But there is a little bit of comedic respite with Ragnar using the data pad and like pointing yep. out the shortcomings of the mine and <laughs> yelling at him for making excuses. And oh, man, I do. Yeah, what I. What I love what I love about that in particular is that keep in mind Ragnar is a low color. He's below yeah. Timony. Yeah. And so him commanding him, and that's sort of the reaction that you get from Timony is like, but but and it's like because he's an is he listening because he's the stained obsidian who speaks in bold text? I think so. Like, I'd be terrified. He should be terrified. He could pull out his spine and use it as a toothpick. Like but, I mean, it's also pretty clear that he's speaking on behalf of yeah. Darrow. So I still don't think it's his place, you know? Oh, no, typically no. But also, if if Darrow's not saying anything about it, who's he to make a fuss about it? You know, it's definitely true. It's just it's fascinating. I, I dig that whole interaction because I think it gives you a picture of even some of the difficulty that they might face going forward, but also how easy and bendable a lot of these. I'm just going to blanket out the term a little bit, but like a lot of the pixier or more pixie-like, people are among the other colors. Mm-hmm. You know, the more fragile people. Darrow does kind of take a little bit of a risk here, though, in that mm-hmm. he then commands Timony to throw an elegant, like, gold-worthy feast for all the Reds after threatening to quarantine the mine. Like, that's... Mm, it's That's a risky thing. And would definitely set off some alarm bells and would, he knows that people like Pliny and the Jackal have sort of ears everywhere, so to speak. Little birds. Yeah, little birds. I, I would definitely agree with you. I do think that it's kind of a dangerous call, especially given the mind that it is. Yeah, You know, exactly. that's the other part of it is that like, this is that mine. Why would you do that? Why would you like, what's the rationale? How's Timmy going to defend it? Timmy has had to defend all of his other choices and actions to Darrow. And we hear that from him. 
Right. So like, how's he going to defend this to like a fucking pixie bronze who will probably run him through just because, you know, Timothy's a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be, I bet there will be some consequences of that eventually. Assuming that Darrow survives this whole thing. A little bit of a cliffhanger there. I would, I would assume he does. (laughs) The book, you mean? Yeah. So I, I also just to end kind of the, the conversation on this chapter, I love the line, I'm not a conquering hero. I'm a necessary evil. I have no place here, but I cannot leave. And I think that really kind of speaks to a lot of the traps that happen in that Darrow is just facing sort of in general, right? Like he is never going to be accepted. He is ultimately a half-breed. He's treated like it. He actually isn't even a half-breed. He's an abomination by all means. Yeah. Severo is actually a half-breed. So it's just like it's he's he's a nothing according to the way that society is built. He's cheating. And he's stuck between all of these different worlds. And I, I don't know if that's ever going to change. I don't know how it could other than succeeding in tearing down any of those structures. Yeah. But then what's he do? You know, like then what is he? King of Mars. King, king of Mars. King of society, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Just kidding. Not hopefully. They don't want a king. They don't want a king. That's kind of his point, right? Darrow's point. Emperor. Emperor. Lord Emperor. God Emperor. Oh. Darrow. Okay. God Emperor Darrow. With that, we move into a sad, intense, a lot to talk about chapter. Why we sing. That's <laughs> chapter 49. I don't know if there's a more eerie chapter title than this one in the book so far. Yeah, it was odd. Just the almost almost how spiritual or like ethereal the sort of feeling was of them moving through the city of Lycos and how it was described. It kind of it, it made me think of some sort of specter visiting his past and uh, sort of interacting with the the angels and the demons in in Ugly Dan and Timony in sort of a larger than life, unreal kind of way. And I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. It's kind of tough to put to words, but it, it, it felt it felt ethereal. It felt specter like in the way that they were kind of interacting with everything. I think especially the way that you're putting it is like specter like is the way when they're moving through the town mm-hmm. and Darrow kind of just knows where to go and like how to get over the bridges and what to do. And he just knows how to do it without using his grab boots and Mustang follows him. And it kind of gives this li- like this sense of familiarity that's uncomfortable and yeah. quiet. And we kind of linger in it for it almost feels like too long because she clearly knows that something is up and there's something unspoken. Yeah. So they they get to the house ultimately, and this is where it gets even more kind of specter like. But I, there, before I get into that, there's the quote of uh, "You told me to let you in, I did." But how far do you want to go? All the way, and then her getting the hollow cube and ultimately seeing what what's going on. But he goes in, and his mother immediately knows who he is and is not doesn't react in any sort of surprise there's a giant fucking gold in her house and she just kind of calmly casually approaches him and that this is the point where i really think of spirits because there there's a recognition here even though neither of them are in their original forms so to speak darrow's this carved adonis and she's droopy but they still both recognize each other right away (laughs) one is more believable than the other but it 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 felt 
it felt like they kind of got to step out of their bodies and speak to each other. And it made me like, it made me think that potentially they're in the veil and this entire thing's a fucking dream sequence. And there was just a <laughs> giant hit of DMT into a teenager's hanging body as he dies. And this whole thing is just fucking psychedelic dream. And uh, I would be so, so dissatisfied if that ends up being the case. Book six simply ends with, and it was all a simulation. Yeah, something like that. Like, it, it'd be, I'd be so upset. <laughs> I would be so upset if that was the case. Yeah, that's fair. But but the the sort of feeling still stands of just something something spiritual connecting them. Like they're they're not talking to the bodies that they're presenting. They're talking to yeah. to their souls. I. I totally agree with you. I think the part of this that, you know, like, and we'll get back to the Mustang thing in a second. I think it's important to talk through kind of the the mom conversation and what you have in terms of thoughts here. I think that that's a fascinating take on the whole thing, right? And I feel like it is sort of, I mean, people do say kindred spirits, and this is literally kin spirits here that are, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing each other again. And I think that's part of the reason that, you know, she's able to look up at him, see his face, not noticing anything else and know that it's Darrow, right? Right. Because like you just kind of can understand the way that someone stands or when they're standing behind you, who exactly it is. And it's got kind of that familiarity to it, even though obvious changes of form and whatnot. And I do I do think the read in comparing them between the stroke and carving and everything else being that they're kind of too misshapen is a great, great read on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's super the the entire interaction also is super heartwarming. You know, it's it is a return to home and especially after and we'll jump back to this after we wrap up this little thing on the home, especially after the kind of heartbreak that it is just handing Mustang the carving and then walking away. This is great, great relief and a great difference. It does. It feels more positive. Like the the beginning of the chapter, like you said, is specter like we come here. It it is spiritual, and then it kind of come becomes homely until Darrow has to hide, right? And then it gets even you know more heartwarming to some mm-hmm. degree. Yeah. But before we move into some of that stuff, I want to jump back to the the Mustang thing, and so I kind of want to get your feelings on Darrow's choice to hand her the carving this way. I think it shows a lot of trust. And I think it that's probably pretty reassuring for her that he he's willing to just give her something like that and not stick around to see how she reacts. It might be a little bit cold, but I don't know if she would. I, I feel like she would probably react in some sort of more hostile way if she had him to look at or maybe wouldn't even be able to finish it. And there'd be a lot of a lot of words said without thinking this gives her the opportunity to kind of cool off and really think things through before approaching the conversation that's going to happen or not happen. But also she, I mean, obviously she has a tracking beacon on her as a sort of a safety measure, but just having the, the ability to walk away and leave the situation is incredibly trusting of Darrow. Yeah, I I would agree with you on trusting. I would also say, and I don't think that, like Severo thinks that it's foolhardy, right, to kind of do it this way or to even be revealing it to her in general. It is. And, and that it's silly. It and I, right. I do agree with that. I, I think that what makes it even foolhardier is placing so much trust in her in that moment to just read between the lines and assemble the picture herself, which she's capable of. She's, you know, she self-proclaimed, but like the smartest person in the galaxy, right? So... Mm-hmm. 
or claims to be. You know, like she is actually intellectually a genius and can definitely put it all together and does. But it feels like such a dumbass move on Darrow's part to just not say anything outside of sort of this verbal agreement of I'm letting you all the way in. You know, she says she wants to be all the way in, but he's giving it to her in that context. And it's just it's a struggle Mm -hmm. to understand in my head why Darrow made that choice. And I think it's just because throughout this entire story, he's failed to actively confront anyone else that's known him for a long time on his red heritage. Yeah, because it's a lie, right? (laughs) It's harder to break the bill's lie. There's there's a whole lot that has to be undone in order for anyone yeah. to accept that truth. And I mean, it took several months to get it through his head, you know, or he had months to wrestle with it, rather, mm-hmm. between Pluto and, you know, meeting up with him again. So it's just it's tough, of course. But I just I don't see that as being a smart choice. What's she going to do? Try to, like, lash out at you and get you with a razor? You are the better swordsman. Like, it's I also like if it were really that. But I also think he would just stand there and take it. Mm. I don't know. I think he'd have a tough time killing her. So, oh yeah, I agree. It's it's hard. It's a. I just. I'm a big miss on this decision on Darrow's part. So the the other thing that makes it even riskier is he leaves her with the hollow cube, mm-hmm. even if she gets stopped or caught or whatever after fleeing. She still has ample opportunity to spread that. Yeah, that's definitely true. And look, and that's especially it's it's good to look at it this way through the lens of as though we don't know how the book ends. Right. Because we know in the end that most of those other people know. And that's a no fault of Mustangs so far as we're aware. Mm. But like she could 100 percent run away with this, spread it everywhere and use it as like a I don't know, a tool. Yeah. I mean, kind of a nuclear tool, but right. (laughs) It it will destroy him. Yep. Dude, it's it's so hard to not mm-hmm. like talk about things in the next book. <laughs> <laughs> My brain is like, oh, shut it off, shut it off. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's exciting. So from there, let's go back into the house, right? We get kind of a couple of different pieces of information as well that I think are pretty interesting. Obviously, like we said, the reunion with mom is heartwarming. I find it pretty fascinating, too, that Kieran, Darrow's brother, marrying Dio, Darrow's dead wife's sister. <laughs> it's like a, it's a match made on the gallows, you know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Um, but also, there aren't that many people in Lycos. I mean, there there are, mm-hmm. but like not a whole lot that could probably relate to you. Right. Like they're, they're definitely kind of, and they already knew each other. They, they'd they already probably built some sort of friendship, if not relationship, before the uh, before the deaths of their siblings, just out of pure proximity to each other. So I, I don't think it's that far off. I don't think it's that odd, but it is interesting. It's no, yeah, cool I, I don't think it's I don't think it's far off or odd. I just think it's, you know, it's not inbreeding, but it kind of feels like it. It'd be like if you married my sister and I married your sister. It'd be it'd be mm. weird. That would be weird. It would be weird. Your sister's already married. Well, I, I actually one of them isn't. So, oh, good point. Little off there. <laughs> She's a child. But still, still weird. <laughs> Even weirder. still weird. Even weirder. I think that the mother also makes an excellent point here. That I, it's it's a longer quote, but I want to read it just so we can get kind of the context and talk about it and dive into it. 
talking about where the Reds will go when Darrow frees them. To where? The surface? She speaks of it familiarly, as if she's known the truth of Mars for years, not minutes. Perhaps she has. Where will we do what? All we know is the mines. All we know is how to dig, how to harvest silk. If what you say is true, and there are hundreds of millions of Reds on Mars, how will there be enough homes for us up there? How will there be enough work? Most won't leave the mines, even if they know. You'll see. They'll just stay miners, and their children will be miners, and their children's children, except the nobility, will be lost. Do you think about these things? So I think there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it is sort of the opposing perspective of the same point that Darrow made about Lorne, if Lorne were the sovereign. I think he said something along the lines of the Reds would still toil under the earth, but they would know why they were doing it. Like they would, mm -hmm. they would know why. And this is her pointing out they would still be miners, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel good about it. Like they wouldn't feel like they were contributing heavily to making Mars habitable. They're just fucking slaves. Yeah. And, and I think that that's kind of the, the, sort of reality that they both face right and it's interesting to see the red and the gold perspective of these people that darrow considers very important in his life it's a great point glad you added it for sure i i just think that it's so it's so terrible right and the reality is is that either way regardless of it being nobility or the knowledge of their freedom they're still retaining the nobility or the knowledge of their freedom they're still slaves right and even if they are freed. What are they going to do? They're going to sit on ref in like refugee camps for a while until they can transition to society. There's just too many people to just throw all at once. It's like Darrow is planning and executing this rebellion without a plan of how to set up society afterwards. Well, I mean, she also makes the kind of makes the point. They still need miners. Like, it's not like suddenly that job will just go away. The need for helium three will still exist and they'll need people to do it. It's just a matter of who and the who is probably the people that know how to do it. Yeah, that's that's definitely a true ad. And I do agree with that. I, I think that what Darrow is fighting for is the freedom of choice. And then, you know, a lot of this is also due to the fact that it contributes to society and helps build Nero's coffers. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, you would still need to mine helium three. Yes, totally agreed. But in theory as well, a society without the societal rules would allow for robots and would would train some of that and have a lot more automation you know like mm -hmm. there's there's that side of it too i can't i just want to make a robot joke right now about Nero, <laughs> but i'm not going to because that mean, was off off air <laughs> well, well we'll get to the Nero robot jokes in a second um but you know like it's it's a it's such a such a you know, I mean, like there, there is a point of liberation for them. There is a point where the society could turn around, but it needs a plan. Darrow doesn't have a plan. Darrow's like, we'll break the chains. If not me, 50,000 others will do it. Like someone's going to break the chains. And it's like you don't you don't really realize what kind of a problem you're also causing. But mm -hmm. I think that it's it's better to solve that problem than to continue, you know, to toil endlessly. Right. But I think both Lorne and his mom make good points. They're just embedded in the current societal indoctrination. And it's it's kind of a, a philosophical tug of war between justice and consequences. Yeah. The last couple of lines of this chapter, too, are just total tearjerkers. Uh, you know, one of Kieran's daughters comes down the stairs and 
it's so great to like see this image of family again, what Darrow's fighting for. I just love that like his mom just sends out this positive message and like gives her something really uplifting when in reality, like she just made the argument too that like her life isn't going to change. I don't know. It's, it's so tough. You know, she's talking about the people that are still with us, right? Like that's kind of her, her inflection point. And it just, mm-hmm. it stings. I don't know. Yeah. I also think that this whole visit doesn't displace EO's dream. EO's dream, I think is larger than EO herself, but I think it does supplant EO in terms of what Darrow's fighting for, right? Like it, it kind of makes this a newer, fresher backbone or reminder of what, what his mission is. Yeah. So that kind of fixes the problem of being disillusioned by like where he came from and, and the love he had for EO and all of that when he was in the bubble dome. It's a, it's a very nice, healthy replacement for that sort of anchor and reason for continuing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I think anchor is the right word. I feel like it, it does ground and buoy him back to, you know, what he's, what he's doing, what he's fighting for. It's that albatross he wears around his neck, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> Always back to the rhyme of the ancient mariner. But yeah, so with that, we move into chapter 50, The Deep. So he walks back outside of the house and Mustang is gone, right? Appears to have fled on tracker. He and Severo had placed on her before departing, which was the insurance policy that he had spoken of previously. The plan in Darrow's head suddenly shifts to, I need to find Mustang before Severo does. Because if Severo gets there first, she's dead. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely likely. a risk. And I don't think Severo is willing to risk it either. No. Like he thinks this whole thing. He was, he was pretty adamant about like, if she doesn't go along with it, I'll shoot her in the head. Mm-hmm. That was like the end of a chapter, a couple, couple weeks yeah. ago. Yep. I think that was the end of 46. Oh yeah. Yep. You're right. So yeah, it definitely, it's like lingering in our heads, right? That like he is going to take her out. So he eventually chases and tracks her down. Kind of, he doesn't really track her down, but he, he makes his way into a tunnel because he's trying to follow where her transport was going. And in the tunnel, he, she appears behind him and we get this whole conversation between them where she's asking all kinds of questions. He sets his razor down She's pointing a scorcher at him and asking for him to kind of explain his motives. And man, that scene is tough. I can totally 100% imagine how this is depicted on film. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's an easy one to film, I think. Just a dark tunnel with two characters dimly illuminated and having a really tense conversation with each other. And I think what's super interesting about it is when you when you think about conversations in dialogue and scripts and anything that's written... It's all about power dynamics, right? And in this situation, generally speaking, Darrow generally has a higher power dynamic just because of everything that we've been given in terms of his character. But he immediately sheds all of that voluntarily, as well as he's definitely under threat. Like, he's also lost power just strictly because he's under threat from Mustang. And so he continues to choose to speak to her normally. He's not pulling anything. He's not pulling any games. He's strictly being honest and truthful. This is that confrontation that I think should have happened outside of the house before she got a scorcher in her hand and got kind of wild and crazy about it. That I think would have been a conversation as opposed to, uh, you know, yeah, at the but, end of a gun. But also then you're acting with strictly like with your gut. And I, I think I don't know if she would have been able to do that very elegantly. I, I, I guess I agree with you and I don't see 
If we're talking about redoing it the other way, right? I don't see there being a way where Darrow doesn't immediately chase after her if she runs away, right? So we never get the scene inside the house. We never get the moment with mom. Mm. We never get that resetting of stakes without him choosing to leave her with that information or to leave her to process. I guess he could have invited her in, but that might have been the wrong time for that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, that would have been tough. Nothing like meeting the mom and it's a totally different you know, situation than you expected mm-hmm. instead hey, of a hey, space racist society. Here's, here's my mom. I might marry her. Oh, sorry. Sprung that on you. Also, I was a red. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not only have I sprung everything on you in this immediate moment, but now you understand that basically my entire life and our whole relationship is a lie. Neat. Cool. 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 Good, 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 good. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's it's just it's a tense conversation. It's great. It's got gravitas to it. You know, talking about the different moments in the Institute, talking about all these different things and their implications and love it. Love it. Yeah. Wouldn't want to change any of it. Absolutely. I see why he doesn't do it so that it happens here. I get it. I understand why. But uh, mm. just just gripe on my part. Ragnar showing up is certainly a, a complication. It's also a it's hard for me to rationalize how that happens. Yeah, I th- I think out of everything, for me, the way that I see Ragnar is Ragnar probably got a ping from Severo saying, hey, go look for um, Mustang, you know, or go look for Darrow, try to find either of them, and yeah. ran into them. Call it coincidence. It's a lot and of coincidence is, <laughs> in the minds of Lycos. I, I think I think it is a bit of a stretch. I, I would say that there's likely also a tracker like Darrow probably just has his hollow pad. You know, we actually know that he has this hollow pad. Oh, that's true. Because he says that he drops it. So I think that's how that's a good point. So, you know, they're able to find Darrow. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it still doesn't like it's still it's still interesting and fascinating because Ragnar is running here, obviously, to in theory, especially the way that he comes off initially. He's like, I should kill you by all intents, like. That's what I should be doing to keep the secret safe, to keep like my future safe, to keep the future of all these things. And he goes through this beautiful speech about all the scars and how he earned them. And yeah, oh my God, it's so humanizing for Ragnar and like the heritage of obsidians. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued. Go ahead. Oh, and it it is a compelling reason why he follows Darrow. Like it really, it would probably sway quite a few people not mustang (laughs) yeah i mean i mean ultimately it's not about it does it does ultimately shake mustang i think it doesn't Mm -hmm. i wouldn't say sway but it shakes her enough i think the especial the the especially the point where he actually like sits down and totally stands down for the cause trusting fully in darrow and darrow's decision and mustang at his urging and you know it's just Especially with with the countdown and everything like that that she's giving him. It's just, it's so tense and it's good to see. I had a question. This is what I was mentioning earlier. It does say he has two fathers. I, I found that interesting because he also has his mother, of course. We know some of the laws and restrictions around the Obsidian culture being, um, you know, like the three different kinds of touches that are allowed, the touch of war, um, the touch of like sex, and I think the touch of death. I think those are the three. Um, I can't. I can't. I don't precisely remember, but uh, there are those to different save points. someone. I think was one of them, right? To, that might be it. That might be it. Like applying medical attention or something like that. Yeah, that might be it. Which also, I can't believe we didn't talk about this. Kind of reminds me of Asimov's laws in their own way for obsidians, right? Asimov's laws of robotics. Remind me. 
Uh, you can't hurt a human. You can't put yourself in jeopardy. If you can put yourself in jeopardy to save someone, you can. Yeah, I, I think I can't remember exactly how they're they're phrased. I know it's I know it's something like that. A robot. Okay, so here they are. Robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human t- being to come to harm. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second law. Okay. Yeah. There was a zeroth law that he added, which is what I was reading. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So it kind of it kind of has that sort of feeling. Yeah. To some degree, obsidians are robots, of course. Norse robots. Yeah. Norse robots. Um, <laughs> fucking Nero. So oh, because I've brought it we'll up twice, there. we were doing some audio tests to make sure that our microphones were working properly. And uh, Crossland decided to talk about Nero and his uh, sexual displeasures with robots. And that's why <laughs> robots aren't allowed in society, because Nero is afraid of them sexually. That's what I'm thinking of now. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it is described as kind of Nero's fear of robots like he does have a fear of robots that's mentioned at the beginning of the book in like displeasure and in general society doesn't like the idea and the quote at the end of this really gets to that so getting back to the the tunnel and kind of the scene that we're in ultimately mustang's decision to leave is a fantastic one i i also like the quick description of like him not hearing the scream of the razor and it got to me to be honest the way a thin whip would obviously cut through the air it's the only time that i'd really thought of that you know, and there's the sound of the slurping as Pliny was being killed. Yeah, yeah, as it's as it's killing someone, and that's of course a an, another great comparison. Mm-hmm. It's whistling through the air. the The final kind of setup and lines of this chapter two are are great. Um, the in her I had a home, I had love, and then I poisoned her to me. I know this was always destined to be our end, but still I hope like a desperate child. What do you live for? I ask. And what a powerful line. Mm -hmm. Like it harkens all the way back to EO. It's all over this. It's I mean, the the whole live for more thing. He's clearly spreading like that's Ragnar said it a couple times, even in this last monologue. The the idea of live for more kind of has become the mantra of the uprising, I think. Yeah, live live for more for sure. Definitely has. I don't know if it's fully adopted at this point, but I really like. So the first time that it's mentioned is on page thirty four, right? And of of Red Rising. So it's within that first fifty pages again, where he asks Eo, "What do you live for? Is it for me? Is it for family and love, or is it some form of a dream?" And asking that question again to Mustang is just confrontational in the way that that original question is to Eo, mm-hmm. and it's a. Uh, it's an incredible moment that they get to share that he he is like extending that hand, showing that he's changed, showing that he's not that he's changed, excuse me, showing that he's still the same person at heart that EO fell in love with, that we liked and have grown to adore over the course of the pages. Speak for and yourself. That, I hate this motherfucker. OK, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That the fans <laughs> obviously have grown to love. But yeah, I, I mean, I just I love that that parallel from the first book to now. Mm-hmm. You're praising this red piece of shit. How Ooh, could yeah. you? I didn't realize you were on Rogue's team here. Mm. Before we move into the final chapter, 
do you have any other thoughts on uh, on anything else? Because this chapter is going to be all consuming. This chapter will be all consuming. <laughs> no, I think we've I think we've done a pretty good job of hitting most major points that we've set out to do so. I'm I'm just really interested in what's happening with Mustang. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it's important to note that like she doesn't we don't get the answer to that question here, no. right? And then she's entirely missing from the next section, and it's repeatedly referred to as like a lover's spat and everything else. It's clearly a big deal that she's not around. There were clearly plans to either capture or kill her, it seems, yep. from Adrius. With that, we move into chapter 51, Golden Sun. Shares the title of the book. It is a brilliant chapter that is so, so upsetting. <laughs> it is really upsetting. I think, so when you finished this, you texted me, holy fuck. Right. Like you were like, holy fuck, what the fuck happened? And you were absolutely losing your mind. Our buddy Kyle also texted me. He like live tweeted it as he was rolling through. And he's like, no, Lauren, no, Nero's dead. What? Fitcher, Fitcher's in the box. And it's like it just the, <laughs> the amount of emotions, the roller coaster of emotions that is this chapter is just insane. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a whole lot. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I guess we'll start at the beginning. There's obviously some. Yeah, there's the triumph pageantry yeah, that's going on. But, right. but I mean, as far as conversations go, the first thing is with Severo and Roke as they're like kind of on the on the way to the ceremony. Roke whispers, you are but a mortal, which at the time reading it seemed like a way of kind of keeping his head, like keeping his feet on the ground, but seems a lot more sinister upon <laughs> looking back at it. And then yeah. Severo cuts the tension a little bit by adding and a, f- and a whore fart. So, you know, <laughs> as, <laughs> yeah. as Severo do. Oh, there's, there's so much, there's so it, the undertones here are so sinister, Right. From from Roke after reading it, after having read it, it, it just feels like all like powerful foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. But you don't see it that way because Roke is consistently like this. Roke consistently stands out in his conversations, helping ground Darrow. Yeah. And also remind him who he is. Like that is kind of Roke's place. Always has been. And so and, and like being a powerful friend to Darrow, even when Darrow's not a powerful friend to him. The the line that you mentioned, you are but a mortal, is just so reminiscent of Memento Mori, which is a constant stoic saying, um, remember you are a mortal, is, you know, it's, it's very clearly just a, a nice little mirror there. And, mm-hmm. you know, Severo's, like, solemn response, how he, like, looks down solemnly, or how he looks solemnly, is a fucking giveaway, because he basically, he's like, yes, yes, you are a whore fart, you are a red, you son of a bitch. And he's oh, basically I, just like acknowledging and giving that away right there. I took it entirely comedically. Like, oh, Sev- Severo was no, 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 no. Comedic. But but the the sort of addition from Roke to be like, hmm, yes, that too. You're also a whore fart. I think it's specifically the word solemnly, right? Like that is mm. that is what gives it this sense of like dignification, deep sincerity. Where he's like, yes. You are a whore fart. 
because you are a fucking red. <laughs> and I can oh. I can absolutely imagine you and I and some of our other friends sitting around and like poking fun at each other and then in all seriousness like agreeing about it but not not being serious but just kind of seriously playing along with the with the joke and that's what i took it as oh i i I agree with you i think that's kind of the original read on it right like it's not it's not meant to be like a heavy tipping of the hand Mm -hmm. but i think on a on reflection it feels like a something that he's genuinely agreeing with not something that he's agreeing with jokingly yeah that because roke is a space racist (laughs) a spacist a spacist spacist um, he's 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 proven that now yeah but yeah I, I, it just it hurts Space it hurts racist. <laughs> yeah man <laughs> all of society is just a bunch of space racism mm-hmm. it's, it's fun yep yep <laughs> um but yeah i i agree with you there is obviously something intended to be lighthearted there from severo severo is always the comedic relief Generally, Roke will joke back a little bit, you know, but I think that's what kind of stops me here is like, why isn't Roke like really leaning into it hard, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I suppose I can get yeah. behind that. They they move out into the ceremony. Of course, there's a bunch of different people on chariots riding through. This is Darrow's triumph for, you know, the recapturing of Mars, the conquering of Mars. Um, so I have a question. From the Iron Rain. When you yeah. imagine this, are these chariots like old Roman chariots? with fucking wooden wheels and pulled by horses or goats or whatever, or are they like modern futuristic floating chariots pulled by robotic goats? <laughs> well, no robots. Um, <laughs> Cause they don't allow robots. Right. So I believe that they're more in the form of old chariots pulled by horses. However, what I see being a little bit different is obviously that like not wooden wheels. Like it's the, the entire thing at all? is very, or do you think they float? I think wheels, because I think that would defeat the purpose of the horse. Is there a horse? I don't remember it mentioning a horse. Good Q PJ. Hmm. Good Q. Gonna look. It's right at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. I don't think there's horses mentioned. Oh, no. The city smells of roses and horse manure. There we go. I was going to say, I was pretty sure, but you know, there are things in my brain that I don't want to talk about, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neat. And that's that horses are illegal in society. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's the horses that are illegal, not <laughs> the being a red that's secretly a gold. Hmm. Yeah. Or robots. Um, Horse racists. <laughs> Horse racists. <laughs> oh, my God. No, it's it's all it's all very good and I I think that it is meant to be like old style. They they specifically call out like what a equestrianism? Equestrian? Equestrian? No, no, no. no a, what? Equestrianism? No, no, no. No, we're different things. A, equestrian or something like that. Going to find it, going to find it, going to find it. It's a it's a period of uh Italian history. Etruscan. Etruscan. Is what it is. Okay. So specifically, like you're wearing the colors of the Etruscan folk, which is, you know, it was like the purple and everything else. So like the the way that they were dressing was meant to hearken that. And that's what Nero says is kind of hearkening back to those original folks. It's talking about Rome, the people that founded Rome, Romulus and the like. And so it's just making kind of 
larger vague metaphors in the in that direction okay so it is meant to be kind of like a total rip on romanism roman society Mm -hmm. the the thing that i would say here to kind of add into is to kind of wrap up a lot of the spectacle and the discussion there the call and response of per aspera ad astra from the white to the crowd is just fucking phenomenal it gives you this massive sense of the crowd and the ceremony of everything going on yeah what does that translate to so that translates to through hardships to the stars that's pretty pretty good call and response yeah right exactly and it it very much speaks to kind of the the sort of like conquering of humanity and the way that they've reached out over time and the way that they've fought through everything and you know the way that society fights together even though a lot of you are repressed like we're all fighting for the better blah 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 no we're not we're space racist (laughs) exactly it's a strong it's a strong like saying for the society Mm -hmm. to adopt as its sort of mantra it's a it's a strong moment and also a big swing, you know, to kind of give us this. I, I really like the triumph on the whole. It feels like this bigger, different moment where you're actually seeing the community of society. So like everyone's together, golds, grays, everyone that is allowed to be there, of course. And it, it feels very it, it's got like a different community esque feel to it that you can imagine the shouting, you know, again, God damn it. You haven't seen the Hunger Games. Again, it reminds me <laughs> of the the in the second when they kind of do a similar kind of triumph march for Katniss and like bring her around and show her off. It's very reminiscent of that, except for that as like some falsity to it. These people are all very happy and very pleased with what's been done. You know, they've been liberated to some degree. They're bringing their children so they can say in the future that they saw the the triumph in person. It's I mean, it is a big fucking deal. Yeah, and I think in theory, you know, following along with Fitchner's plan, it, the the man who's intended to be the eventual sovereign, you know, after years and years and years and decades and decades, after like, you know, Nero in theory were to claim it, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so our plan that was established last episode is basically out the window. We'll get there. Yep. So before we move on, We've been talking about this little quote, this little conversation with Nero here pretty much the whole episode. There's a lot more to the quote than just the robot bits, though, but I'm, I'm going to gonna read that real quick so that we can hash it out. Gold did not rise out of chance. We rose out of necessity, out of chaos, born from a species that devoured its planet instead of investing in the future. Pleasure overall, damn the consequences. The brightest minds enslaved to an economy that demanded toys instead of space exploration or technologies that could revolutionize our race. They created robots, neutering the work ethic of mankind, creating generations of entitled locusts. I think before we get into the jokes that exist all around this, it's this is a great, very erudited, lifted speech. Mm-hmm. And it, it it absolutely justifies any of his actions in his own mind of mm-hmm. like I we we treat people this way because otherwise look what happened. We've seen the other side. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's definitely quite a bit of sort of self uh, excusing, I guess, excusing, pardoning his own actions and thought processes and the the actions of society as a whole. 
which is very easy, easy to do when, when, you're, when you're one of the most important people in the highest class of people in the universe. Right, right. And he just continues to kind of excuse that, right? Like, he, he basically says at this point, inside of the conversation, how many would you kill to protect mankind? Darrow asks. A billion? Ten? Nero responds, the number doesn't change the necessity. And it's just so... God, it speaks exactly to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But is he wrong? Looking at it from from this point of view, if this is how you've seen things, is he necessarily... Does he have evil intent? Or if he truly believes all this, can he be faulted? I mean, the only fault are the morals that we place on other people, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, they're only faulty based on the morals that we place on them. And I think the general opinion is that the morals, and Darrow shares this, obviously, is the morals of killing 10 billion people of, you know, only double-digit billion society is bad. But But if if it allows humanity to go on... Yeah, so what what he's basically saying is that he doesn't want to be a blip on the radar, right? Like he mm-hmm. doesn't he doesn't think humanity should be a blip on the radar. We should be focusing on extra galactic things, right? Like getting out of our solar system, right? Becoming more and claiming more. Live for and, more. Yep, it is his own live for <laughs> more, right? I I totally that's exactly where I was going with this. Is this is his own his own perspective, and that's why he's kind of talking down to Darrow about the reformer perspective that he knows Mustang has. And that's why he goes along with the betrothal. And he's like, you'll, you'll be my son, but I need you to inherit these, these beliefs as well. And Mm -hmm. kind of foist them. You, you're kind of my, you're my arm. You're my extension. Honestly, I feel like the chapter should end after this conversation and there should be another chapter for the back half of it. I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like they feel like very separate deals i guess yeah i feel like they didn't want to convey the passage of time and how are you going to title these two chapters right golden sun is a perfect title chapter for both of these you know yeah this you one also more don't want to give other. away what's going to happen you know yeah that's true by like breaking it up i don't know i i see like carrying momentum and not interrupting it but i i agree like it almost feels like this break could have been a chapter break because it's so mm-hmm. there's a lot here yeah i agree we we move on. Darrow ultimately accepts the agreement to become Nero's son and Mustang's husband, proposed by Nero. He doesn't know anything that's going on with Mustang in reality, <laughs> of course. Um, doesn't know what's actually going on with you know the Hall Cube and everything else. So he doesn't know what he just tried to engage in. But mm-hmm. it's a it's an interesting moment, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, he also it's I think important to note at this point. It becomes less important to note it later, but um, this is done with the blessing of the jackal, which mm-hmm. that's a fucking red flag. <laughs> yeah. Who he is not somebody to give up any sort of claim for power at all. Mm-hmm. Like that is so yeah, against who he is. He's been hinting at no longer trying to win his father's affection for most of this book. Yeah, but that, but doesn't, that doesn't have that anything doesn't to do with his father's power. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care to be his son, but he does want what he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> man, that that was a huge red flag for me. Yeah. And it wasn't wasn't very long where that came to fruition. But man. yeah, it was it's um, it's a tough one. 
we then move on into what I'm going to call the second half of this chapter. And the second half is ultimately the banquet for the triumph. Everyone's gathered around celebrating. Lauren's here. We get a brief conversation with him. It happens to be our last conversation with him. Kind of poking and prodding at the fact that Mustang isn't here. Telling him to make sure he you know keeps her. Whatever he's done to scorn her, forgive her. Um, which I think was, I mean, as far as the last rites go, not the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Two bottles yeah. of Lagavulin. Yeah. And a grave. Well, probably not uh, even a grave. Pour one out for Lorne. Um, this is when this is when the entire book gets really fucking hard. So we get that line from Darrow. Or excuse me, we we get the line from Darrow that Roke asks him to kind of recite as he's walking over and talking with him. There's a number of people around. Antonia's mom, Victra, like we said, Lorne. People are showing up. Fitchner's auspiciously missing from both the original ceremony and here. And it's it just it just goes south so quickly. But that line that he recites, if you're thrown into the deep and do not swim, you will drown. So keep swimming. Is <laughs> and um, man, the use of bloody damn later on that same page. But there's, yeah. there's, it feels like there's so much that happens in between there because it's revealed that Lilith and Fixus are yep. are the pinks in disguise as servants or as servers, which. They they hinted at it pretty pretty heavily before, when he noticed the sort of familiar movements of Lilith's disguised disguised characters. I figured it was something like that in the moment. Yeah, but it's it's tough. So everything unravels very quickly, right? Does. So like you said, Antonio's old crony Vixis is there. Lilith Jackal's right hand basically is there, and. We, we find Darrow basically gets pricked with a ring and poisoned in the same way that Roke was sedated, you know, in a similar way that Roke was sedated, but he gets to just watch all of the rest of this chapter go out. And he, he says the line and thus go liars with a bloody damn kiss. And I think it's really important also to note here. I know we've talked about this a couple of times, but I think the italics here both hit emphasis and show that he tried he dropped into like low speak to say it mm-hmm. because every time a character that isn't a red says it it's an italics right it's yeah i think probably just sort of some sort of emphasis where it's said differently maybe i, I know we talked about maybe it's done in sort of an irish accent or just some sort of distinctive uh voice but i took it more as a strictly emphasis thing and making sure he understood that he was using that word for good reason. Like, yeah. And I think it stands to reason either way. Like it's either it, it can be both emphasis and it can be him dropping into like a different tongue mm-hmm. would also speak to the emphasis. Right. right? Yeah. That's because true. he knows. So I, I think either way it works, you know, whichever way it was intended. God bless Pierce Brown. Cause it lands. Mm hmm. And then the entire scene unravels. Everything dissolves. Everything gets terrible. More, you know, terribler. More terribler. As though, like, some of the shit that we've seen happen couldn't get worse. We get our very own, in my opinion, worse Red Wedding. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it is it is a straight up coup. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's totally in the for the sovereign in the sovereign's beh- on the sovereign's behalf. So we we get kind of a right in the way we get we get presented with the box we get our what's in the box kind of moment out of seven yeah. <laughs> here which is you know kind of for me it, it was a moment of terror terror and it reminded me of that moment and also kind of like a small moment of comic relief because I just imagined Brad Pitt as Darrow screaming for a second even though he can't scream mm-hmm. but Nero calls out Arcos to arms but it's too late. He's already being stabbed by Lilith and put down so many times. Victor gets spot in the sh- spine twice. Her mother killed with a shot to the neck. She's like bloody and dragging herself across the floor to Darrow saying she didn't know. Lorne's dead. <laughs> Jackal's line is he stabs and kill him. They were wrong. Your side isn't made of stone. Like just mm-hmm. fucking everything. Yeah. So many people die here. I, I think there's there's a line in here, too, where it's like entire generations of people undone in a moment, you know, like they, there's so much other bloodshed. We we obviously see a lot of immediate bloodshed here. But there are other lives taken as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we know the Telemannises aren't here, though. We get that revealed at the very end. Yeah. Thankfully. Uh, Cassius is there. Aja's there, isn't she? Aja shows up. Yep. She drops in. Yeah. With Cassius. What dickholes. So, um, killing everybody. How, how do you feel about Lorne, Victra, and I think we'll get to Nero's death in a second here, but how, how that, how'd you deal with that? Um, so Lorne, I feel like it would have been more powerful coming from Aja. I think that could have, that could have made it even worse, but it, it was a very fitting, kill by the jackal and i man just victra crawling to him it, there's drool sliding down his like throat it, it is just so viscerally violent and bloody and just a fucking bloodbath with no retaliation yeah Derek can't do anything no one can do anything yeah they they planned this properly and so to so to speak to the the aja thing i think i agree with you i honestly i still am unconvinced i don't think aja would have actually killed him Mm. i I really don't only at the immediate behest of the sovereign would that have happened not to say that the sovereign didn't maybe command that in general but i still don't think she'd want to do it i don't think she'd want there's enough i think yeah if if it was already in that situation where he's He's incapacitated. He's been taken down by Lilith and she gets to be the one to kind of put him out of the misery. I think that would have been a more fitting, powerful kill of Lorne. Right, right. I I agree with you. I think it kind of solidifies the the jackal's place. And I think it gets it gets even more solidified here in a second um, as kind of a a supervillain of sorts. Right. We've got kind of our four, our lineup of four villains, our four primary villains, mostly all showing up to one extent or the other right here. We've got Jackal, Cassius, Aja, and indirectly Octavia, because the whole thing doesn't happen without her. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, basically all the big bads of the book so far. Mm-hmm. Make yeah. an appearance. 
Yeah, and they kill pretty much everyone on the on the good team. You know, the the most disappointing thing to me, I think, out of this entire part is the fact that Darrow isn't the one who gets to put Nero down. You know, I kind of always wanted mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But there's the there's the reveal from uh the jackal about oh his brother what what's his name oh uh cadius claudius i'll get it before you claudius claudius yep and that that made it a a little bit more satisfying i guess to come to to have that sort of emotional state put upon you Mm -hmm. ah less sad no like it made it a stronger more emotional killing Especially as Aja is like telling him not to. It's some some bad blood, and absolutely, I would have loved to see Darrow kill him. But this is a pretty decent way to do it, too. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's just you know, it's that kill is especially brutal because he breaks Nero in his last moment, right? Mm-hmm. I, I really, it, and, and we'll get to, we'll get to talking about this in a second. Before we get there, I want to mention the, the Cassius bit, right? So Cassius comes up to Darrow and basically says, you killed my family, Darrow, all of them, me, Julian, that's one thing, but the children, how could you? That's interesting yeah. because we don't know that Darrow did immediately kill them. Right. And he even says, I don't know what he's talking about, but I either somebody's been slipping lies into Cassius's ear or because they were killed as a result of the iron rain that Darrow called. It could be seen as Darrow's responsible for it, I guess. It's hard to tell. Yeah. But it seemed more personal. It seemed like. It seemed like he was uh, accusing him of personally killing his entire family. Right, right. Which is, yeah, he was basically placing the blame there. And, you know, meanwhile, that leaves, like, if you're thinking about the power vacuum on Mars, leaves Cassius and Adrius basically is the only two real powers left. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Telemannises, but they're fleeing as far as we're aware. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating especially on the side of the Cassius. It definitely poses some questions that we'll, uh, we'll talk about at some point. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> Moving on to the next thing. I, I find it really interesting that Roke basically recounts all of the names of all the people died for that died for Darrow, right? Julian, Leah, Pax, Quinn, Weed, Harpy, Rotback, Tactus, Lorne, and Victra. They deserve better than to die for a slave and stab me and gut me like roke you son of a bitch you never believed in the cause you fuck yeah but i mean he was never told about the cause either yeah true so it's not like he's i mean he is double crossing darrow but he's doing so only because of new information that came out about him um i do wonder how how that happened how that went about like obviously probably the jackal recruited him into it 
But did the Jackal know that he wouldn't accept it or did he take a risk on like recruiting him into this scheme? I think the Roke went, that Roke went to the Sovereign, right? So like Jackal is ultimately in charge of pulling everything off, but Sovereign is also clearly involved. Because no, 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 but who, who told him? Who told Roke? Yeah. Or did Roke figure no, it think- out himself? I think Roke combo like didn't have a whole lot of loyalty to Darrow after all of the events of the book. You know, he feels ridden like a horse. And also, I mean, it had, it had to be the Jackal because the Jackal right. told everyone. Yeah. So how I mean, it could have been Mustang, but it could have been Mustang too, I suppose. Hmm. I'm just throwing, throwing out the random out there, but. I, the the text seems to lend itself to say that Mustang is not involved, and so I would go with the Jackal telling Octavia, and then that somehow feeding back to Roke. Yeah, or Roke could have started it if if Mustang went to him for sort of a powwow about how to handle this, and she told him, and then he went off and I don't know talked to the Jackal. I don't know. There are a multiple multitude of ways that this could have gone down, and I'm sure we'll learn about it eventually, but it's fun yeah. to speculate. I, I have to say, the entirety of page 441 from, and, and you kind of, you jumped to this ahead of time, but like the entirety of 441, I think is my favorite page in the entire book, which is to say like from the beginning of the conversation about paying Karnas to killing to actually being the end of Nero. That's like my favorite section, I think, in this entire book. Mm-hmm. There's so much, there's so much bite, right? It's so like Augustus is so fucking upset uh, about the fact that he knows that his prime son was killed by his other son. And then the Jackal's whole thing, I am your boy, he sneers. I was a good son. I worshiped you. I feared you. I obeyed you. I learned what you wished me to learn. I went where you wished me to go. I only did as your will commanded, yet it was not enough. And then fucking Augustus says, I should have strangled you in your crib. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but I mean, and then, it, apparently he had like left him out to die in the in the in the elements for three days as a baby. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Right. And that's brutal. And then he's like, come now, father. And then he disowns him. He says, you are not my son. And Adrius flinches. With so few words, Gus releases something. And that small part of Adrius that held out hope to be loved disappears. He shakes off his humanity, leaving only the jackal. And that's why I think this next bit into the Paradise Lost quote, which we'll break down, is so important. And that gives context. This entire point gives context to the reason that this quote is here. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. For, for those who don't know, the Paradise Lost in general deals with the fallout between Lucifer, the angel, and God, written by Milton way back when. And the line that's quoted here is, Then farewell hope, and with hope farewell fear, farewell remorse. All good to me is lost. Evil be thou my good. And basically, like entire dissertations have been written about this. There's so much here. But he's basically swearing off the fact that, you know what? You never cared. You're my father. I tried to do everything that I possibly could to appease you. It was never enough. And so I have turned into the only thing that I was ever destined to be. 
which is to say that evil is my means to an end, and I have always been evil, and therefore this is my only rationality to move forward. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, ugh, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Fuck. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's so frustrating. It's too. ridiculous. It's so good. So though. frustrating. Man, and you'd want that to be the end, right? Like, that should be the end of the book. But no, no, no. We got another stinger here. Just waiting. Two of them, technically. We got uh, Darrow finally being able to talk, right? Finally being able to talk after witnessing all of this. And saying two words. Roke, brother. And Roke turns to him, and he says, No. No. You're a son of red. And I, a son of gold. That world where we are brothers is lost. And in this world, the power of gold will never wane. We have a new big bad. We have a new big bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I mentioned this at our pre-show a a little bit, but like I was so like I was biting my biting my lip when you're like, you're like Roke. And I was like, God, Roke is the worst. (laughs) No, you still like him. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Uh (laughs) I'm just waiting. But, yeah. I'm waiting for you to, I don't know, stick me with poison and <laughs> oh, no. disown me. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, it's just such a powerful quote. And Roke, being the poet, naturally, of course, comes up with this, you know, nice little stinger line here. Yeah. It just sucks so bad. <laughs> Especially because, like, it at the beginning of this, before everything broke out, he says, like, the... I would have paid a thousand times your contract, right? Mm-hmm. Would have. And that's just so, makes me so angry. <laughs> makes me so angry that Roke's a racist. Space racist. Space racist asshole. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, space racism <sighs> will be the undoing of everything. Yeah, the undoing of Darrow for sure, if that's not already clear. Yep. <laughs> uh, and uh, then there's one more stinger. What's yeah, in the box? The, the, real, the real stinger, what's in the box? Uh, which is, of course, of course, because we just, we, we finally meet Ares. We finally hit this point. Where it's like, oh, we can maybe have a plan. We can maybe work together. Nothing needs to be ominous anymore. And fucking Fitchner's head is in the box. Stuffed with grapes. Ares and all the Darrow fought for in that last paragraph is just completely undone in this chapter. Yep. I did, not to take away from the the weight of it, but it did kind of bother me a little bit that his mouth was stuffed with grapes. It, it obviously there it, it's a callback to his father's killing of Iona Bologna. Iona Bologna. <laughs> Iona, Iona Bologna. Iona Bologna. Whatever. Yeah, it's Ioni Bologna. <laughs> but that's like a couple jumps too far to make any sense to anyone coming from the jackal. You know. Like it doesn't, the continuation, the continuation there doesn't fit. Yeah. I think that really the only person who's really going to get it is Darrow, right? Or other people who kind of understand or remember. Well, because Nero, so Nero much would the, get it, obviously. Maybe that was the intention was to present it to Nero. I think that might be the case or to present it to both of them because yeah. they're both meant to be alive, right? Yeah. So uh, maybe that's it, but he, the Jackal doesn't know that Darrow knows that about his father. No. Right. 
necessarily, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think it's to some degree it's infamous, right? But that entire part of history is also kind of erased because of the eliminated house, right? Yeah. That was that was killed off in that same exchange with Octavia. Like Octavia helped murder, and that's how like she rose to being the sovereign. So it kind of stands out as something that's kind of an inside comment or inside joke. And Jackal is sinister enough to like play on an inside joke. That doesn't mean that it carries the same weight. I think the Iona Bologna carries a lot more metaphorical weight in terms of the murder, but I feel like it's more meant to be a symbol of your mind, bitch. I got you Mm -hmm. in the same way that Nero kind of had the same sort of sentiment. Yeah. Your house is nothing now. That's the fucking book. That's the book. So it's a good, that's um, a good book, man. It's a good book. man. It's a pretty good book. It's a fucking good book. <laughs> it's upsetting to me how good this book is. <laughs> yes. You know, I, we're going to we're going to talk a lot about a lot of stuff next week and kind of work out and resolve a lot of these feelings. So there aren't any predictions today, but do you have any other thoughts that you want to air on the side of this final section? Oh, man. I don't think so. I think I need to really collect my thoughts and reapproach the entire book and try to come up with some some talking points for next week because as as is tradition we've got sort of a wrap up episode on the entire book with a guest. Yeah, yeah, so we'll we'll definitely talk about that in just a second here. I I wanted to also say just to kind of pin off the rest of this. I talk about this book as like the Empire Strikes Back of the series. Do you now do you now kind of feel me yeah. on that dark that dark going in like hopeless going into the end? Yep. It is uh it's a sad one. It's a sad book. <laughs> and it wasn't sad until like this last fucking section. This last like five pages. Yeah, it just everything heart brutalized. Mm-hmm. My God. My God. Okay. So with that, we're gonna move into next week. So next week we've got a lot going on. On Monday, so just a couple of days from now, you're going to be getting our special episode wrapping up Golden Sun with our guest, Sovereign Tib of the Sons of Aries Discord server. Big old community server, lots of people hang out there, you know, almost a thousand strong. Feel free to join if you're interested as well. We'll have a link next week. Should be a grand old time, and it's just a couple of days away. After that, we've got, is it the short story next? Yeah. Yeah. You've got, yep. Both of those on Thursday. Oh, yep, yeah, yep. On Thursday, yeah. We've got Pierce Brown's other published work. Other than uh, the Red Rising series, there is a short story in the book Star Wars from a Certain Point of View. So it's got 40 authors writing stories in the Star Wars universe from a different character's point of view, sort of a fringe character's point of view. And he has a story in this called Desert Sun. So we're going to be reading that and that is a uh, a story surrounding Big's Darklighter. Should be yeah, fun. yeah. And from a from a certain point of view, is specifically a New Hope. They're doing one for each of the original trilogy so far. They just released the second one this year, and then this one I think is a year or two old. Okay. So and interestingly enough, there's also a short story by Chuck Wendig, who wrote the uh, product placement short story that we read early on. Yeah. Which is a great short story. His short story here, too, we might cover later. Yeah. It's kind of a fun book. 
Yeah, I'm excited to read it. He Crossland sent it to me in the mail, so that was my Christmas present. For yeah, him. so yeah, I nothing like it. podcast work for a Christmas present. Yeah, huh? exactly. And then uh, <laughs> after that, also on Thursday will be the intro episode for uh, Morningstar, the third book in the series. So lots of us next week. Yeah, yeah. Next week is going to be a busy one. That Morningstar episode should be really short. <laughs> um, we're not gonna. We're gonna try to work everything out that we can on our episode with Tib. So it's really just going to be a kind of a quick summary. It'll be a flash in the pan, maybe twenty minutes of quick breakdown. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Continue to refer us to your friends and family, anyone you know that loves the series. Follow us on Instagram, etc. Leave us a review. Subscribe on the platform of your choosing. Anything and everything that you do on those helps us grow and is really, really important. As always, we update our website with the pictures and recipes for the drinks that we have on the on the show. I learned today that <laughs> despite what I've been saying, we don't actually have a calendar on the website, but we are fixing that quite soon. Yeah, we we met about it on Saturday. It's okay. It's it, coming. It'll it'll get there. So and as mentioned by Crossland social media if you ever want to interact with somebody with a gorgeous giant penis you can talk to either of us at words whiskey show on instagram and on twitter yeah so just to clarify the giant penis is on instagram that's pj and the mediocre man hangs out on twitter with uh with the rest of the the <laughs> schlubs <laughs> for the most part i i he's I being dabble, modest you know i dabble modest <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i uh, really, really am- the impressive <laughs> So we really appreciate each each and every one of you for all of your contributions and helping us grow. Feel free to send us any questions. We actually have a ton of listener questions for the episode with Tib. Feel free to send us any questions that you might want me to ask PJ going into Morning Star, Iron Gold, or Dark Age, because we're going to be doing those over the next couple months. So feel free to send those to us. We'll, uh, We'll get to you when we can. Thank you so much for everything you do. That that was a fucking ending. All right. <laughs> I guess we're done now. Bye guys. Bye.